you join me this morning in the Gospel of John chapter 13? Gospel of John chapter 13. And I want to read verse 34 and 35. Gospel of John chapter 13, verse 34. I'm reading from the Eugene Peterson's translation, the Message Bible. Let me give you a new command, love one another. In the same way I loved you, you love one another. This is how everyone will recognize that you are my disciples when they see the love you have for each other. Amen. You may be seated. Help me out, Brother Exum. I can't hear myself. This thing is not nothing at all. On a day in which multiple expressions will be experienced, recognition of those to whom have been the carriers to give us life, for some, this will be an exciting, joyous day because we may leave the moment of worship and return back to where our mothers are to embrace them, to express our appreciation unto them, and to let them know in multiple ways that we certainly embrace and appreciate their contribution to our lives. For others, it will be a day of remembrance where their mother is no longer with us. They now only have the memories of meeting with their mother. It will be a day of rejoicing, but also it will become a day of pain and sadness because they no longer have the gift of reaching out and touching and embracing the one who gave. This also may be a day in which one has no feeling at all. The journey has been one of biological mother is it may be one the individual desires not to be in relation with their mother at all. And so the day is merely nothing more than just a symbolic national holiday. Then there may be those who do not know again who their biological mother is, but someone stood as a surrogate mother the surrogacy so covered the multitude of emptiness that they almost did not need to know biologically who their mother was. Because that surrogate mother not only filled in the gap, but provided the one element that every creature 
and human existence desire, love. She or he gave that love on this day, she gave that love that that person might be able to experience what it means to be loved. And then what it means to experience it, to be a reciprocator of it, and then now have the responsibility of being the one who gives it back to someone you have now birthed yourself. It's Tom Rayner, once my professor of church growth at Southern Seminary, who unveiled in his research recently that all across America, church attendance in diverse congregations is declining. You can't see that, just look to your left and look to your right and you'll see it evident even among ourselves. Rayner has included multiple ethnicities in his research to affirm that the suspicion is that religion is now being interpreted differently than it was in the past. And as a result, one might conclude that it is being replaced with a diverse approach to Rayner concludes that a solution to reverse the trend is actually in the air. And it's not what we may consider. It's a solution that really revolves around interrogating a particular question in each of our spirits. It is not a question, yet critical question, but not one that involves a committee. You, you can't get a committee to wrestle with this. So those of you who love to have committee meetings, this, this won't address it. Not only can't get a committee, says Raina, but you can't even use a survey. Can't send out a survey and ask about this question because it has nothing to do with the multitudes. But it's a question in which one has to answer individually. In fact, Raina says you can't even employ multiple methodologies of church growth to actually answer this question. It's a personal reflective question that every believer, as I said, has to wrestle And the question is this, am I demonstrating the conqueror behavior of God's love that Jesus commanded us to express? Are we really and probably better said, have we really grasped what's advocated in John 13 and verse 34 and 35? Do we really know what Jesus meant when he says, I want you to love one another just as I have loved you? And then he says, by this, as people, your demonstration of love to each other, they will then know that you are my disciples because you have loved one another. In other words, here is, am I working with 
or maybe better said, am I working to develop an attitude to love the good, to love the bad, to love the ugly, to love the indifferent, to love the beautiful, to love the marginalized, to love as Jesus requested that we do. Am I working to develop that kind of attitude where I can embrace people, whoever or whatever and wherever they are? Jesus says, a new commandment I give to you, to my 12 divinity students, that, that's what they really were, 12 students who were under Jesus' tutelage, disciples they are described as, and disciple just simply means I'm a learner, I'm a student. This word he gives to these 12 students that you love one another even as I have loved you. And then verse 40, 34 is interesting. It repeats the same phrase, that you love one another as if there's an emphasis to be placed on one another. Jesus is inadvertently informing that there is a cost to motherly love, and I want to equate Jesus' command to that of a mother on this day because it's costly to love, to love sacrificially, and to love with a stabilizing kind of effort, there's a cost there, not easily done. In fact, I think any mother who has more than one child will tell you loving all children is not an easy task. Some are more easier to love than others. And then the ones that are difficult stretch you the most but in stretching you the most, they cause you to have to dig deeper in your reservoir to give out more because they stand in need of more. But then you come to realize you love them unconditionally. They don't really have to qualify to be loved by you. You just love them because they are descendants from you. You gave birth to their life you gave meaning to their life and as a result you can't help but love them no matter how they turn out even if they are ended up being the worst of a criminal that may be a bad child but you will argue it's still my child may not be a criminal but most difficult in terms of attitude and personality but yet that's still your child and you will go to the extra mile necessary to make sure that that child experiences the love that you have to give it's sacrificial in the sense that you have to give more than you would to those that you have to work less to love but it's stabilizing because you know that your giving is only temporal in the sense that you are laboring now, but yet you are setting that child up to understand henceforth, now, and forevermore, not only what it means to be loved, but here is how you express 
love as well. And so we love them through all their pain. We love them through their difficulties. We love them through their own imposed isolations. We love them because we have first been loved. But our love also is not just sacrificial and stabilizing, but it's spiritual. Because mothers have this tendency of tapping into the love of God that's almost undefinable. No matter how rough the moment may be for the growing up of that child, somewhere underneath their breath is always, I'm going to trust the Lord that he's going to make this better. Somehow the Lord will make a way somehow. I'm going to turn it over to the Lord and leave it there. I realize I may worry, but I need to stop and put it in the hands of God. Even when we watch our children leave our presence, mother, and she recognizes they're going out to do no good, she will still remind them, I'm going to pray for you, that God will watch over you and protect you. This sermon is the introduction to a series that I'm going to do revolving around the idea, the theme that's in this chapter, one another. There are some 59 different quotations in the New Testament in reference to the idea of one another in which Jesus admonishes at the height to love one another. But Paul comes along and tells us to pray for one another, to strengthen one another. The writer of Hebrews says, encourage one another. There is something about the one another theme in the New Testament that's meant to help us. And even, says Jesus, the idea of loving but also forgiving one another. But I ran into a problem because as I kept looking over my list, <clears throat> I kept saying, how do we honor one another and accept one another and encourage one another and pray for one another and forgive one another without first beginning with the motivation source which triggers and guides those kinds of behaviors. And that's loving one another. I said it's a big request to follow because Jesus is asking us to possibly do something that is extremely humanly difficult to do considering those to whom we're trying to portray this love upon. Can you love the good, the bad, the ugly, the marginalized, the different? Can you love the lesbian, the homosexual, the transgender, criminal, can you really love those as Christ has loved you? Or a new term that I've learned recently, can you love the non-binary? The non-binary means that these persons 
do not identify as male or female. They have no gender identification at all. Don't try to figure it out. You, you look like I looked. You don't, don't even try. Just wrestle with the question, can I love them despite of where they are and what they are? In fact, they refer to themselves as themselves, as they, them, and their, and not he or she. Can I love the slick, the sly, the sneaky, the manipulative, the traitor, the liar? Jesus, in John 13, provided a model to be examined. And I think it's amazing that this happens at the communal setting. Passover is about to occur and they're breaking bread together here. And Jesus identifies two critical points in wrestling with this big request that he's asking us to do. Verse 1 says that Jesus loved his disciples until the end. Now that got me because when I ran down the list of some of those disciples and observed their behavior, I was wondering what did it take to love them. In fact, I was really okay until I got to Judas. And I was all right because I, I realized that Peter is a reflection of all of us. You know, a little crazy sometimes, a little all right sometimes. He's the special child in the group. I, I got him. John loved every, you know, John is the disciple of love, and, and he had this deep love for Jesus. They had a very special relationship. In fact, Peter had a special relationship as well. But John, you know, everybody liked John. I, I, I got him. We know little about about. Bartholomew and Nathaniel and Andrew and the others, but when I, got to Jesus, when I got to Judas, it was hard for me to understand how Jesus loved him knowing what he was up to. Now, I, I can probably try to love those if I don't know, but once I start to know what's on your agenda, once I realize who you really are and what you're really about, once I come to understand that you really don't mean me any good at all, I, I don't get how Jesus handled that. And this word in verse 1 says he loved even Judas, he's a part of the 12, until the end. But it also says that Jesus loved the traitor at his table. That's what verse 2 says. Knowing that Satan is working to get into the hearts of those 12, Jesus still loves them. And he still knows that there's a traitor at his table. And yet, it would seem to me that Jesus is contending that traitor, that traitor needs my love just as much as the non-traitor. In fact, I want you to know that, that I'm not going to expound upon it very much, but it's just FYI. I think it's Psalm 41.9 in which 
David talks about a friend at his table who will betray him, which is really where we get sort of this scene from this 13th chapter of John's gospel. In fact, David uses the term, he will lift up his heel against me, which in his original language meant that that person is behaving not like a friend, but behaving absent of divine friendship. And if you read verse two very closely, I want to say something that perhaps you might disagree with, but think about it for a while. I'm not a believer that Judas was slated to be a betrayer. I don't believe that. I don't believe that Judas was born to betray Jesus. If that were the case, then we would have to remove the word from John 3:16, whosoever. You'd have to take it out. Because if someone is born to betray, then that means that person has absolutely no chance at all for salvation. And that would be in defilement, totally against the word of God. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever would believe would not perish but have everlasting life. I believe Satan showed up at the
already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, the son It's prophetic about what's going to happen in the future. It's about a love intention that she's given in the space of exercising humility, even with something expensive. And But isn't that just like a mother? To forego what's expensive and desired by her to make sure that child has what that child needs. I wanted the dress. I wanted the shoes, I wanted the purse, but he or she needed shoes. They needed a dress, he needed pants. They wanted to be in ballet, I needed to pay for that. It would help them. She foregoes what's valuable to her to give that child life. And if that's not enough, I love this meal presence, this meal scene, because it reminded me of what my grandmother used to do. She set the table, and everybody was made to sit down and start eating. And we would say, Grandmama, when you gonna eat? And Grandmama say, I'm fine, you go on and eat. You just make sure you go on and eat. And what she would do is stand back at the edge of the door, and just watch everybody else eat. And when everybody else was done, dishes were being cleaned up, she'd get her a plate and then sit down at the table and eat. We'd be mad. Grandmama, how come you wouldn't eat with us? Why don't you eat when we ate? Grandmama wanted to make sure that you ate. You look at this scene, look at the the historical setting, Jesus, he did something unusual. Normally, you wash feet before you get to the table. But Jesus washes feet as they're at the table. No one did that. But him changing the custom made such an imprint upon the minds of the disciples that it was one that they would never forget. And do you not know, I haven't seen my grandmother probably in 50 years now, but i never forget that scene, which would have been non-traditional. Normally we want everybody to sit down at the table, but that Southern heritage, or probably more importantly, that motherly loving instinct. No, I want you to eat first. I want you to have it. And Jesus pulls, says the text, he stands up at the table and takes off his robe and wraps a towel around his waist. Takes a basin of water and then goes around and starts to wash their feet. 
while they're seated at the table, they're all seated in a certain order. While they're there, you don't just sit down like we would. You'd actually kind of be in a kneeled kind of position and all of you would lean on your left arm with your right arm free. And the reason why John is where he is because you were set up by rank and order. He's right next to Jesus. Peter must have been at a distance because when Jesus started telling him about somebody's going to betray them, Peter has to motion with his mind to John, who are he talking about? Who, who is he talking about? He motions to John and says, ask him, ask him what he's talking about. But Jesus says it's important for me to practice and show you by way of illustration what humility means. Because that's the first act of love. To disregard who you are in the sense of stretching out to love somebody else regardless of who they are. That's tough. That's tough. In fact, when Jesus begins to wash the feet, he comes around to Peter, and Peter asks, what are you doing? You're not washing my feet. And Jesus says, if I don't, you will have no part of me. He was trying to tell him, if you don't allow me to wash your feet, then you will not know what I'm doing, and you will also not know how to love and be in humility as I'm loving you. He must have caught the message because he said, Lord, not just my feet, but my head and my everything else you can find on me. And then Jesus made this interesting statement. He says, when you come to the table, you're clean if you've washed yourself before, except your feet. But not all of you are clean. One of y'all is completely dirty, he says. And that struck the disciples. One, how you gonna say that in the middle of the meal? Because you know how when we're all there having a meal together and we're all laughing and talking and then someone says something all out the, boot, the blue, way over in left field, and we look at one another and start asking, where did that come from? Why, why would you say that now while we're at the table? You couldn't go outside and say that at the car or something. You, you said it right here at the table. And Jesus says yes. And then he tells them in verse 12, he says, what I'm doing for you now, you, you won't even understand. But you'll come to realize it later as time goes on. But isn't that like a motherly figure? beating the crap out of you and then tell you you don't understand it right now but mama loves you this is why mama is doing it to you and later on when you have your own children then you'll see why mama had to do what mama had to do but mama you ain't feeling the pain like I'm feeling the pain but mama was saying prophetically, I'm humble enough not to let you go buck wild and set yourself up for destruction in the future. 
And I don't know about you, but you know, my, mother, my grandmother used to get them switches and tie them together. Uh, and then she'd make you go out there and get them. That's a bad thing when someone makes you get your own weapon of abuse. And then if you brought back the wrong kind of switch, because, you know, my objective was to get the little thin, small ones that when they hit, they just, you know, tap. She'd go back out there and get them long ones that was about that thick around. And when they tap one time, you could just feel that whip just coming all up on that skin. And then it's repeated, it's repeated, it's repeated. But I don't know about you, but I'm grateful that that woman loved me enough to give me webs from her switches so that I would never get webs from police brutality. I would never be behind bars looking out. I was too scared to violate the law. I was too afraid to break her commandments. In fact, I was more afraid of my grandmother than I was my grandfather. Isn't that a strange dichotomy? We would think that you'd be more afraid of the grandfather or the father because of the strength. Uh-uh. Grandmama was brutal. And yet Jesus says, I'm loving you right now and you don't even understand. I'm doing an act of humility. And after he washed their feet, the Bible says he stood back up, dropped the tile and put his robe back on and went back to the table. Let me ask the question. I'm almost done. Would you really let everybody at your table? If you knew that I was going to shoot you within the next hour, would you let me at your table? Y'all trying to act spiritual now. I know you're trying to get spiritual. I, I know, I know, I know. I'm going to help you out. No. And I have an explicit before the no. You know, happy, Edward, Larry, Larry, no. Read through the lines, duh, you know. You got it, thank you, sir. But, but look what Jesus does. Read the narrative. In fact, there's something, something strange, Ricky, in chapter 13 that I want you to notice. It, watch how Jesus, follow me in the text, ha, has all these strange episodes. I told you in verse 5, he poured water in a basin, washed disciples' feet with a tile, Verse 7, he says, what I do now, you don't realize it, but, but you'll understand later. Verse 12, he says, so when he, had, when he washed his feet, he took his garment, reclined at the table again, and he said the critical question, do you understand what I just did? That's what grandma was really asking me. Do you realize why, do you understand why I just beat the crap out of you? But even God does that to us sometimes. In God's disciplinary action of trying to get us to recognize the importance of not going astray. 
He disciplines us to the point where we get alone and we ask God why. And God asks, do you not understand why I had to do that to you? You weren't hearing me. And let's just admit it, sometimes when it comes to God, we don't hear unless God thunders. The subtle spokenness of God doesn't move us enough. Look at verse 14. We called him Lord and teacher, washed the feet. But Jesus says, because of that, I want you to also wash, here's that phrase, one another's feet. Lord, have you seen everybody's feet lately? But that's a custom that we just cannot phantom now in 21st century America, washing someone else's feet unless it's a relative. And even then, they must be either sick or something where they can't do it themselves. But Jesus is arguing that you 12 are a family. And one thing Tom Rayner recognized in those declining churches, he says, is that he says somehow we have lost the understanding that a church is not a country club. It's not a social gathering where the haves have their place to which they sit and be and the have-nots occupy another spot of the church. That's not church, says Rainer. But the church is a family community. And then he goes down the list and challenges us. All of us, he says, are sinners. We're all broken. We're all bleeding. We all need surgery, we all need a diagnosis, and we've all come to the same doctor to experience his divine healing. How in the world can we attempt to marginalize one another in the house of God? And that's why Jesus says it's important that you learn to express love to each other because although you may be composed of diverse composition, you ain't no better than the other. All of you are the same. Just because you live in one community that's upward mobile and somebody else lives in one that is less doesn't make you any better in the kingdom. But we've done that in church. And this is, this is Murphy's thesis. I've argued this in my own writings and some people, particularly my professors, raise their eyebrows because they know I've hit the nail on top of the head. We do whatever the world does. Whatever the world does, we do. We follow it. So if they start loving, we'll start loving. If they decide to qualify people to love, we'll decide to qualify people to love. And we justify it by saying, well, you know, we live in a different age and time. And we got to be careful of everybody. I, I realize that. But what happens to the line of that hymn? He looked beyond my faults and saw my every need. And if it had not been for God's love to love us in spite of, 
we'd never be in this house this morning. I don't know about you. I would be so far away from the church. You wouldn't even have to ask me. You have to ask, what is a church? Why would I come to a people voluntarily who've hurt me more than the people outside of his confinements? I've never seen such hurting people till I arrived at a church. Never seen people so mean till I got to church. Never seen people so hateful till I got to church. Never seen people so deceitful and, and a lie to your face and smile at the same time until I got to church. At least in the street, I know they're lying. I already know you're lying. And they know that I know they're lying. I know when you're trying to deceive me. They already know it. It's a game we play in the streets. You got to learn the game. But I don't expect that in church where we holler and shout on Sunday we love the Lord and then on Monday we lie to each other's face. That's the community that Jesus said, I expect for you to be able to love one another despite who's in the house. I got so much more to say, but I'm going to say this, then we got to go. Have you noticed Jesus, although when they asked the question, who's going to deceive, who is it that's betrayed at the table? And Jesus says, never identified him. He never identified him by name. He just simply said, the one that I dip the bread in the sop with and I'm going to give it to him, that's the one who's going to betray me. In other words, if you notice Jesus don't make it a business, I didn't say business, business, to identify everybody's sins publicly. That's the worst thing we do in church. We are extremely critical but hate to be criticized. Ain't no need y'all getting quiet now. I'm almost done. I'm going to bring the benediction soon. Yeah. See, Jesus led him at the table, and even though he knew he would betray him, Judas, he loved him. I had an uncle who was so destructive, but yet... Grandmama would always let him come home. As I got older, I would always wonder, why in the world? I'd have left that brother out a long time, locked the door, took his keys, everything. But, but never, never. He'd come home in a drunken stupor. She'd drag him in and put him in the bed and wake him up the next morning and tell him he got to go to church. Now, Grandmama had this thing where if you came in at 6, you better get all the sleep you can because at 1045, you, you're getting up out of here. You can't stay in the house while I'm going to church. And that was her rule. You, nobody was in the house while grandma was going to church. From 11 to about 4, the house was empty. Now, you can come over after she get back, but in between that time, mm-mm. So what did you do? You best arrive with grandmama to church so you can stay close to her. And grandmama, when you needed something, you know, grandmama, she had a purse on her arm. But you know, when you really wanted to get something from grandmama, grandmama, wait a minute, baby, let, let grandmama see what grandmama got. Grandmama already know what she got, let grandmama see what she got. 
Because grandmama would never reveal your weakness. And one reason why I think Jesus said, they'll know that you know me by the way you love is because you won't be busy trying to reveal each other's weaknesses. But you'll love through them. You'll love one another. Everybody in town knew my uncle was a drunk. But Lucille went downtown every Saturday. Now, you know, in the country, in the South, we only go downtown on the weekend because that's, that's the only time we often work. And Grandmama would take me to G.C. Murphy's and Ben Franklin to get me a hamburger, shoestrings, french fries, and a Coca-Cola. And I didn't know it then, and they actually met to gossip. And they talked about everybody. I mean, everybody. Everything, everybody. But when someone mentioned they saw my uncle drunk on Back Street. Now, where the little town my grandmama's from, Back Street was where all the clubs were and the, the liquor holes. You know, that's a, that's a derogatory term. But that's where you went and got your drinks and all that kind of stuff. And someone told her that they saw, they, I saw Donnie on Back Street. Grandma would say, I know you did, but that's all. Leave it alone. Leave it alone. Leave it alone. Don't, don't talk no more. Now, my grandmama was partially, uh, her, her father was part Cherokee. And, and he, he, he would, when he drank, uh, Ben was a kind of rough guy. And he had this expertise thing with knives. You know, he could, I, I, I believe he could stand at this pulpit right here and hit that exit with a knife to shoot right in the middle. Well, grandmama kind of caught some of that stuff DNA-wise. <laughs> but grandmama was a little more old school. She didn't do knives. She did straight razors. Y'all, y'all, you know. Grandmama would cut you, boy. I mean, cut you bad. And when grandmama say, leave it alone, you best to leave it alone. Because grandma was saying, I, I recognize my boy got a weakness, but you let me handle his weakness. And those of us who are in this room today, if it hadn't been for somebody loving us when we failed, somebody who looked beyond, and Tom Rayner says, and then I'm done, that's how you turn around a church. You literally love the hell out of the church. You love people through it. And as a result, people can't help but come because it's a place where they're wanted and desired. And Jesus says, by this they will know that you are my disciples because you've loved one another. He's really challenging us. Replicate what I've done to you. Look how I washed your feet. Look how I humbled myself as the king of kings. I took the lowly position to let you know how much I love you. Can you do that? Can we do what Jesus does on the regular? How about this? Can we give grace for grace? 
as God has given us grace, can we give some other folk grace? He says, risk loving because all participants in loving is participating in the unknown. In other words, yep, you are tempted to love someone, you don't know how they're going to respond. But that's not my request, says Jesus. I'm not asking you to wait until they respond. I'm simply saying, love them anyway. Because that's what someone did for us. Relationships. That's the cornerstone of a community. That's what he was teaching them around that table, being relational. People want to be a part of belonging. They want fellowship and they want friendship. Here's a question. Can they find that at Greater Little Zion? I got one yes. See? Repentance. See, loving brings repentance. Loving a person brings out of that person eventually, I'm sorry. It doesn't have to be to me. Because my objective is, in fact, I don't even want it. Just send it to the Lord. That's who you really need to say I'm sorry to. Because I don't have a heaven or a hell to put you in. All I can do is point you to where grace can be. And it will be efficient and sufficient enough to meet your need. We don't talk about repentance all in church anymore because it means metanoia. It means I got to turn around. And some of us have been doing what we've been doing so long, we don't want to turn around. We just like where we are. But the community has to be a community of repentance. So when we offend, hurt one another, we've got to learn to let that be known to the person we've offended or hurt. Wish I could tell you how many people who told me I don't come back real as I am more because so and so and so and so and so said something to me that hurt my feelings and didn't even say they were sorry. So I ain't never coming back. Now that can be anywhere, but we ain't talking anywhere. We talking right here. And then finally restoration. That's the hallmark. That's the hallmark for the bruised and the battered who wants healing. It's in this community that the bruised and the battered should be healed. Because you and I have been healed, bruised and battered. And I would think that I'd want somebody else to have what I got. If I found the freedom there, I want to introduce them to that. If I found peace there, I want them to experience that peace. If I found love there, I want them to know about this love unconditionally. Jesus was also saying the worst thing I want people to do is to witness your community on the outside only to come inside and discover it's not what it is reflected on the outside. Let me translate that for you. So I hate when people come join us because I know I give it a little time. They're going to join a ministry. They're going to find out we some crazy folk at times. And they're going to leave. That's the reality. Because we're not understanding. It's not what's reflective on the outside. It's what they discovered that makes us tick on the inside. And if it's not this agape kind of unconditional sacrificial love that Jesus is talking about, they won't stay long.
It won't stay long. There'll be the diehards who are mature enough to push through. That's another thing. Many times we're dealing with such spiritual immaturity that they're not mature enough to look beyond that drama that we create. They're not mature enough. So they get broken more than what they already are. And they move on. And Jesus says, I know it's a big request, but you got to do it. Because people out there are looking for some place to find healing. And it ain't always in the glass. It's not always in the weed. It's not always in the opium. It's not always in the heroin. It's something on the inside. Says Isaiah, that surpasses all understanding. That's what they're looking for. And I want to be grateful to all mothers today who managed to, exp to express that, but also to impress that in the hearts of your child. How to look beyond faults. It's all needs. I talk about this thing of indifference. Colleague of mine is taking a beating because he's decided to be a congregation of inclusiveness. Hey, you know what that means. That really freaked people out. Does that mean we're going to have gay and lesbian people all in our church? He said, yeah. That's exactly what that means. Isn't that against the Bible? Nope. Nope. See, when it says for the wages of sin, it didn't say which one, it just said all. The wages of sin See, notice it's not plural. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. For we've all have sinned, past tense, and fallen short of the glory of God. There are none righteous, no, not one. How can you get past that? You can't. But God says, I'm not looking at the particularity of a sin. That's, that's y'all stuff. That's why y'all in a mess. You're trying to categorize people's issues. Where does yours fit in at? Where, where yours fit in at? Got to be in this category somewhere if you're going to do categorizing. No, so my friend made it clear. He said, no, we're accepting people because of who Jesus Christ is. A savior who died on the cross for all and a God who gives love no matter who. White, black, green, purple, doesn't matter your ethnicity. Love is love for the glory of God. And all I'm saying is can we not love people that we may disagree with? Why do we always say we can agree to disagree? What does that mean? What does that mean? We can agree to disagree. That simply means, listen, we can understand on this particular point we're not going to agree. Let's agree that we're not going to agree, and yet we're going to disagree on the meaning of this point. But we're not going to let it separate us from who we are 
as a family. I'm going to say this and I'm done. Do, do you think everybody in this room get along with every member of their family? All I got to say is I have a very, 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 very small family. So it's kind of hard for us not to get along. It ain't but one, two of us. So, you know, when you get a little mad, it ain't much to get mad to. You just, but I'm a part also of another family, an extended family. My wife's family, good God, from Zion. <laughs> when you have a large family, ooh-wee! Man. I just said, baby, I see why you pray every day. I just see why you pray every day the way you do. You, you, you really need to. You might want to add fasting in that. And, uh, you know. I did tell a humorist, I don't know if Mary is here, I told a humorist, you might want to get hold of Mary so if y'all get a special fast going on for your family or something. You know. But no, we don't all agree. You can't all, I mean, I, I shouldn't say you can't, but you know, we got issues. We just have differences. But that don't mean that the family should break up and not love each other, care for each other. That just means we're different. That's the reason why every disciple in Jesus' little group was different, and he never made a difference of them. Loved them all, even Judas at the table. Washed his feet. And can you imagine how he felt when Jesus told him, now that you got your bread, do what you're going to do. Read John 13. He leads with his bread in his hand, and he goes to do what he's going to do. Can you imagine that? What's in his spirit? And I know it was pricking and convicting because when he took those 30 pieces of silver, which is cheap, it wouldn't amount to much of nothing. When he realized what he had done, he wanted to give it back. And the Pharisees told him, man, you got, that's, that's blood money. We don't want that money back. You keep that. That's blood money. Here's another sermon. Some of you live off of blood money. Come on up. Let us pray. <laughs> Lord, thank you.